What do carbon credits, biological diversity units and a social enterprise cafe in Kyneton have in common? This is Remarkable Regional Business. I'm Caleb Maxwell, and the answer to that question is Paul Detman. Paul is the founder and director of Cassinia Environmental and a bunch of other different really cool businesses. Uh, and in this episode, we dig into his business journey, some of his learnings, his uh, lessons, his philosophy in business, and uh, what these uh, amazing businesses actually look like. I'm sure you're going to learn something. I hope you're inspired. Let's get into it. Paul, thank you so much for coming on this podcast, being in the studio with me here. You're very, very welcome. Thank you. I've never done a, a, a filmed podcast before. Yeah, so first is, video podcast. Exactly. Come on. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm super keen. You have just like a million things that I could ask about. You're a founder and a director of a, a couple of different companies. Do you want to just give me the list? Well, that's a good question. I should have written it down. So- <laughs> the the main thing we do is environmental restoration projects and okay. protection. So Cassinia Environmentals, like that's our main gig, and that sort of, that company started about twenty years ago, and now I'm no longer the CEO of that. Nathan Smith's running that, so that's sort of doing its thing and doing pretty good. Nice. Um, I'm really happy with that, but. On the journey, you know, over the last 20 years, we started a few nonprofits and started a few other companies and got a few on the on the simmering, hopefully going to turn into something. So it's, right. a, it's a reasonable it's a reasonable list. And right. After a busy day, I always people say, how do you do what you do? And I think, I don't know if that's the question. I think the question is, why do you uh-huh. do what you do? Cause yeah. Well, I don't mean that. In, I just mean this is stupid, not in yeah, the, yeah. Not well, in the you've deep got motivational sense. You've got to have something that drives you, right? Well, you and, do. And that's what you're hinting at. Is no, that I'm not. I'm oh, just saying, what on earth do I do all this stuff? Like, do you know why, why you do? Yeah, hey, why don't I have a day off? But because sometimes it gets really busy. Yesterday was a oh, was a crazy day. But anyway, yeah, we can go through a bit of the list. So oh, we, well, let's got, go. Cassinia Environmental. That's that's the big biggest one. That's just the say? biggest. Yeah, in yep. terms of staff and capacity and. Yeah. yeah, footprint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what are, what are some of the other? Well, we sort of spun out this thing out of Cassinia Environmental called Cassinia Community. So this is like thinking about social. So Cassinia Environmental is basically environmental markets. Like, how do we do environmental good? How do we find lots of points of connection? Because sort of traditionally it's been philanthropy or government, but I guess environmental markets not aren't just thinking about commodifying the environment, but it's more thinking about where where is all the places that we could capture value and mm. and direct that toward environmental gain. So yeah, so Cassinia is is the main thing. But on the back of that, we're like, we've learned a few things and we've got a lot of networks and we could do some non-environmental stuff that, you know, potentially sort of sometimes I you know use the idea of building a quilt you know like a quilt's a beautiful piece of uh useful thing but it's made up of all these scraps of other things you know mm. potentially it's not one big piece of material and and i feel like in order for us to build the quilt of cassinia or whatever it's it's always lots of lots of threads that come together so what do we what does that look like for yeah. some sort of non-environmental stuff and yeah, there's a few few interesting projects that are really that could sort of break out and become quite 
interesting. Wow. One of them, I mean, I'll just jump into yeah, one please. now, but one of them, and maybe we haven't even talked about this. I don't no, think we this have is actually. new information yeah, to me. Right. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> well, it's like, uh, what's the number one um, thing that people would aspire to for their lives in the world? And I think the, no, the number one thing, if you did a survey of everyone in the world, would be that their children would go to university. Yeah. I, I, you know, having worked in in the global south for a while. Yeah. It's like that's such a common aspiration. Yeah, right. And I heard a stat the other day, yesterday, that f- by 2030, 42% of people under the age of 20, I think it was, will live in Africa. So what? isn't that amazing? It's nearly half what? the world's children and young adults will be African by 20. 20- 30. Now, that's amazing. Maybe we need to fact check that, but I think yeah. that was it. So, like, and Africa's potential access to university, by comparison, is like very small. So, if university is the thing, that, did you go to university? I did. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I went to university. I mean, university's got problems too, but yeah, but it, you do <laughs> learn a lot of stuff, and yeah. it's a great way of. Launching, you know, your thinking, your career, yeah. and your networks, and all that stuff. Yeah. It, it, people who went to university, you know, on average, are glad they did. Yeah. So yeah. let's just go with that. Yeah. But uh, if if we if Africa's not got this access, mm-hmm. and the developing world, global South hasn't got this access, um, that's a problem. You mm-hmm. know, especially forty two percent of people who need it are going to be in Africa by twenty thirty. So. So we're thinking about like okay, so what is what are the barriers? Well, the barriers are pretty obvious. You know, the government hasn't got what we've got in terms of hex and these. Could we develop something using all the approaches and you know yeah. scrappiness we've learned and yeah. from environmental space? Could we could we find a way to create a prop a product? I suppose a way for. Uh, potential university students to tap into education in the global south. Wow. And I, we've spent a year and a half on this, and we think there's a model. Okay. And it's pretty exciting. Yeah. That is really it's, exciting. Yeah. So, so that's one of our – that's like one of the so – there's eight that, – that's probably the one that's the most exciting, most developed, but there's eight right. projects like that in what we call Cassinia Community. Wow. And then Cassinia Environmental, yeah, it's it's, you know, leading – it's work in reforestation and um, sort of environmental restoration and environmental protection throughout South Australia, Victoria, and New South Wales. But interested in going other places too. Wow. And then we've got this other project called Wilderlands, Wilderlands.earth, which yeah, is. Yeah, tell, tell us about Wilderlands. Wilderlands is, yeah, so Wilderlands is environmental as well, but it's looking at. Um, Looking at the idea of at the moment, you know, we've had, we're sort of familiar with carbon. Carbon markets have been around, you know, twenty years. Um, but when the the Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed back in the nineties, we also signed and actually it got ratified earlier a, a Framework Convention on Biological Diversity, which is like, you know, basically nature. Biodiversity is you know natural s- systems for native species. That's how we would. Defined by yeah. So, so let me test that knowledge that mm-hmm. I, what that sounds like to me. So it, when I'm thinking about biodiversity, mm-hmm. I'm thinking what is biodiverse and what isn't. Mm-hmm. What isn't could be when a, and a massive land is stripped of all of its vegetation, mm-hmm. for example, and used to to grow things for massive large scale farms and mm-hmm. and some, you know, 
literally take everything off. Yeah. That would be non-biodiverse. It would yep. be like, what's the opposite of diverse? Uh, monoculture. Uh, yeah, mo- like monoculture. Yeah. Whereas the uh, uh, your company and your focus in the environmental mm. space is uh, building up biodiversity, not mm. replacing farms, for example, no. but adding back in mm. natural uh, vegetation or that mm. what would be there, and that actually helps the soil, mm. everything, the ecosystem mm. of mm. that environment, it's better for that land and better for everything, right? Yep. That's right. Yes. Yep. Great. Yep. Nailed That's, it. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay. Well, we'd, we'd also see that, like, landscapes, like, there's, there's lots of aspirations that are in landscapes. So mm-hmm. we've got food production. Yep. And we've got fibre production and we've got livelihoods and we've got communities. But we've also got a whole lot of sort of non-human aspirations, like, you know, native species want to live and flourish and and I guess our 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 position is that maybe two thirds of a landscape should be used for for the aspirations of people mm-hmm. and a third of them should be used for the aspirations of of nature and cool. so so the example you gave of the monoculture you know that wouldn't necessarily be like oh we're never going to do that it's yeah. like but how in this landscape how do we realize the aspirations of the farmers but also realize the aspirations of mm. these other species and that's you know, great yeah yeah it's quite the quite the responsibility and the balance right to how yeah. what what is the balance so I, I love mm. that you've had that like one third two thirds kind mm. of um, basic thought so um, we we pause there on wilderness tell mm. me a, a yeah, little bit so about wilderness. yeah yeah that's right we did <laughs> so so wilderness is like well carbon's become a thing we've signed this Convention on Climate Change. We also signed this Biological Diversity Convention. What's that going to look like when people really start to go, okay, how do I, I know how to buy a carbon credit and I know how to think about that. What's it like for individuals and businesses to think about what does it mean for me to engage with this other convention? Mm. And yeah, so Woodlands is an early, one of the first movers in terms of developing a biodiversity credit. Okay. A bit like a carbon credit, and uh, and we've got a white paper, so you can see woodlands.earth, and you can download the white paper off the website. It's sort of like our theory of change, of of how this should be rolled out and yeah made real. Right. Yeah. Um. All right. High level. Yep. Let's go. Uh, what is for those who don't know, what is a carbon credit, mm. and then what's this idea, high level version of what's a biodiversity? Yeah. Credit? Okay. Yeah. So a carbon credit, um, there's a little bit of controversy about carbon credits. Some people think um, they shouldn't be a thing. Um, So I suppose put that up front. I I think they've definitely got a place in the transition, but I think that the co-benefits of of carbon credits are often far more valuable than the the carbon credit piece themselves. And they enable ways of thinking about change and they, they value other parts of, you know, of the of the the value chain, I suppose we did some work in in Africa where where carbon credits really add to livelihoods. But what is a carbon credit? Yep. I mean, essentially, a carbon credit means uh, an activity that either prevents or absorbs a ton of carbon. Um, so, so it could be growing trees, and so generally, a carbon credit will be the equivalent of one ton of carbon dioxide um, that'll be absorbed in those trees, or it could be in soil, or it could be avoiding the the emissions of those you know comparing it to the baseline what would have happened if we hadn't have done anything and if we go and do something like build a renewable energy you know 
piece of infrastructure compared to a coal-fired piece of infrastructure, then we can get, you know, the number of units that didn't get emitted from that. So that's where that's carbon, that's credits. carbon credits. And so that's it's really was started. This system was started as a, as an incentive for yeah, an incentive or a. I mean, companies are looking for ways to overall reduce their impact on the environment yep. and they can reduce their emissions, they can reduce It's a way to measure, use. I suppose. Yeah, it's a, it's a benchmark against which we measure. And we're, you know, we, we measure the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in parts per million and, you know, there's the thresholds that are slowly being breached and we're like, we don't want to get above, you know, 450 parts per million or whatever. Um so biodiversity credits are a little bit similar in that we, our threshold is we'd like to see, and the global framework, the global biodiversity framework says we'd like to see 30% of the world uh, managed for nature. So our, well, our, our theory, Jade, has always been a third, a third, two thirds, but the global biodiversity framework is almost the same. It's, it's pretty 30%. close. Yeah. So, so, so that's really measured in square meters in okay. area in uh, hectares you know okay so our um our uh our approach to developing biodiversity credits is in in square meters of of native vegetation that is was not managed for its nature features but yeah. is converted to you know management purely for for conservation right back to the square meter and so when we're talking about both carbon credits and biodiversity credits, are they uh, traded or transacted mainly through corporations or individuals? Yeah, so carbon, there's sort of, there's a compliance market and there's a, a voluntary market. Yep. Yeah. So mostly corporations, I'd say on both, but, you know, voluntary is perhaps more individuals, or there's more certainly individuals in the voluntary space, but in the compliance space, there's a lot of... A lot of yeah intercompany stuff. Mm. Permits. So in terms of compliance, you're talking about there's there's certain thresholds or certain um, measurements benchmarks that companies are required to meet if they're say a high uh, emitting industry. Yep. How does that kind of work? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And look, this is driven out of Europe, and most of the industry is happening in Europe, and and Europe is is via regulation uh, reducing you know, the emissions that are coming out of different companies, different sectors. So that's where the bulk of the, you know, it's about 800, I think about 850 billion euros was transacted in the carbon market last year. But most of that will be intergovernmental, yep. you know, in, between governments and corporations and, you sure. know, and most of it's happening in Europe. I think our space is the nature-based space yep. and I don't, I don't have the numbers right at hand, but we'd be like 1% of the global carbon market but when it comes to biodiversity you know the nature-based space is the biodiversity market really so we're you know we've we're really interested in ensuring that uh, all species have the ability to thrive and so carbon's a bit of a the co-benefits of carbon can be biodiversity mm. but the biodiversity market is you know that's the main game so we're excited about the development of that over the next seven years because the the thirty percent that's aspired to in the global biodiversity framework is by twenty thirty. So we've sort of got this lead up, cool. lead up to twenty thirty. Right. Wow. Righto. So we've touched on Cassinia Environmental, yep. Cassinia Community, Wilderlands. Um, there, you're based out of Kyneton, right? Yep. 
and there's one of my favourite cafes is actually oh, yeah. in Kyneton. Can you tell me a little bit about the Social Foundry? So, yeah, I mentioned that there's a couple of sort of non-profits that have happened along the way, and, and, and me and a mate of mine from Kyneton, Simon Burnett, um, had this idea around a social enterprise that's like a sort of like it was originally conceived as a, like a, a way to bring sort of workplace mentoring back into um, back into perhaps you know people who who had had limited opportunities to break into the workforce and what would workplace mentoring look like in order to develop skills both job skills and life skills and could we do that through a social enterprise model and so social foundry yeah 2016 we kicked that off and um, did you answer that question? Could you do it? Well, it's hard. It's a lot harder than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> and hospitality's, you know, we thought, ah, oh, this is going to be like, oh, everyone, there's so many cafes, they must, you know, must be easy to sort of turn a profit and be able to run this thing out of a hospitality sort of enterprise model. And that's a lot harder than we thought. I'm sure everyone, <laughs> if anyone listens to this, anyone who's been in hospitality will be going, yep. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot have, harder than people told you think. That. Oh, look, there's just so many complexities to it. Well, the yeah. standards, I often think about hospitality, the standards of excellence are so high yeah. and people's standards and expectations mm. on their experiences mm. are ridiculously mm. high, but mm. the, the money exchanged in that uh, transaction is very, very small. So, man, hats off to anyone in hospitality, I it say, like because they do yeah. – Phenomenal work yeah. on really not very much at all. No, no. Um, but there's there's this there's this uh, cultural value I think that we have, especially as Australians, mm. Victorians, for yeah. hospitality to be good, to be great, mm. to be excellent. Mm. Um, so there's a little bit of a mismatch of you know mm. um, what, what we pay for, yeah, what the market's what able expect. to charge and what we expect. Um, but I can say from you know from my uh, journey of seeing the social foundry mm, over the journey, mm. over it, its existence yep. um, that it is one of those excellent places. It's you know it presents a great culture, a great vibe. You can tell that the people working there, whether they're whether they're on a mentorship uh, situation or or not, they just they have this. Uh, they feel it seems like to me, and you can tell me mm. if I'm right or not. Mm. It seems like they feel like they're a part of something mm. bigger than just a cafe. Mm. Would you say that's I part of it? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do. It, look, it's it's hard, um, but it's incredibly rewarding. Mm. But it's it's one that I mean, I feel like hospitality people, like some of the work that I do in the rest of my life, you know, um, meet some amazing people, have some amazing experience, go to some amazing places, and I'm like. I don't reckon I work anywhere near as hard as the people who are running the cafe. It's just so <laughs> relentless and, yeah. and they've got to be on their game all the time. But, yeah, I think they are at a, in our social foundry anyway. I think they're really bought into the fact that, yeah, this is about more than just a job, mm. which is which is beautiful. But yeah, it's not for the faint-hearted either because there's just a million things. There's yep. just always a million things. The grease yep. trap. You know, there's, there's like, who would have thought that you got to spend this much money every quarter on this thing? Oh, we've got to make, you know, if we're making 10%, that means we need to turn over this amount yeah. to make, you know, 
And then there's yeah. a million of those type of things. So it's it's yeah. it's tricky, wow. actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's great. It's very but rewarding. Kudos to all of you uh, hospitality people out there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We respect you. Um, all right. I want to just do a, a little bit of a deep dive into Cassinia. Mm-hmm. Cassinia Environmental, um, what – We've talked a little bit about the carbon mm. trading, the carbon mm. credit kind of access. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like practically for you? Yeah. What's the scale of your team? Mm. What are the actual on-the-ground actions that you're mm. taking every, every day? Mm. Can I, rather than answer that question directly of like course. that, can I go back to how it's like how yeah. we started and, yes. and like – Go back. Please. Yeah. yeah. Go for it. Because I feel like that gives the context and then we can Great. sort of unpack where we're at now. Great. Um, and it's always, I love hearing people's stories. Yeah. Um, so I grew up, just like you said, I, I grew up in Kyneton actually, sixth generation on the family farm just north of, of Kyneton. Yeah. And my dad's still on the farm and my son's on the farm. So I feel really connected geographically um, into that sort of north of Kyneton space. Um, studied ag at Dookie. Ag college and followed up by doing a master's looking at how farmers value nature. And I got offered this master's by my supervisor and my bachelor degree. And I was like, yeah, it was such a great thing to be able to step in and do this piece of research for three or four years and really understand, you know, mm. the way farmers think about nature. Mm. Came out of that going, I really, you know, this is the space I'm going to spend. Uh, if not the rest of my career in, you know, a yep. good chunk. So started Cassinia, sort of 2000, it was about 2000, but was working as an agronomist with elders at the time and, yep. and three or four years of that while I was trying to propagate this business on the side, make it happen. Got a couple of sales. Bendigo Bank was the first ever customer we had. Really? So shout out to Bendigo Bank. Nice. But just um, the way they took a punt on us to offset their fleet back in 2003 or four or something. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and we, I think we charged them like three grand and we actually contracted the work to get done. And no. that, that was $2,700. So the profit no. for that year was $300. But yes. we had a great, yeah, it was a great little project. Yes. And it's still there. Um, so, yeah, that was the sort of, that was the beginning. And then. We picked up some work with, with Greenfleet. We were contracting a lot of their uh, plantings in sort of 2004, 5, 6. Had a couple of staff. We started buying land in 2008. So we sort of, the model switched from being able to do stuff just contractually, like you've got a bit of land, we'll plant some trees, we'll write a contract and, you know, we'll agree to the contract. To 2008, um, we, we realised we had to get stuff on title. So mm. if it sold, people couldn't chop the trees down so mm. and no one really wants to stick stuff on the title of their land like that's forever yeah so we suddenly our whole supply dropped up dropped out and we're like well, what do we do you know do we shut the business down or wow. is there another model and then we thought well, maybe we could buy land and and think about other ways of financing this as well so we mortgaged the house bought a piece of land um uh just sort of between inglewood and wedderburn near mount Krong. Yep. And uh, did our first sort of big project that we owned ourselves. Wow. Uh, and amazingly, amazingly uh, met some great people who I still work with um, in that journey of that first project and and uh, found this uh, threatened, well, it was actually an extinct orchid, 
Bush Heritage, who had a property quite close by, had just found it on their reserve and we got some surveys done on our property and it was there as well. So it was so cool to have stepped into a project like that fairly ambitiously and fairly felt fairly, you know, felt a little bit nervous to to mortgage the house and buy something like that. But then once we... Once we'd found something as special as that, it was like, oh, yeah. this is great. Yeah, wow. Just did a whole lot of restoration work, protected the good bits yep. where the orchids were. It was about 1,000 hectares, that project. Yeah, wow. Um, and then things have sort of, we switched over to that. We buy the project and then we think about, you know, how do we make this work from three or four or five different income streams. Wow. And, yeah, so then the team's just grown um, sort of incrementally, Two, three, four, five. Um, in two thousand and must be two thousand nineteen, I think. Um, Nathan, who's now the CEO, joined, and um, yeah, that was a real shift of okay, we're we're bringing somebody in who's a real systems, you know, got a real systems approach, a systems thinker, somebody who can really help us scale. And yeah. so, since two thousand and nineteen, we've had. You know, a fair bit of growth. Um, right. We uh, we're now a team. The Kissinger Environmental is now a team of about forty. So wow. Yeah. So really, from five or six or something when Nathan joined, it's been a, a rapid scale up. That's but, huge. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, the the biggest thing yeah. that's sort of on it that's been in our wheelhouse for a year now, and it's going to be the biggest part of our next five years, is a Victorian government program called Bushbank. Um, Tell me about yeah, Bush, Bush Bank. Bank. Yeah, uh, Bush Bank is a is a a state government initiative that it's got a few different facets to it. Um, there's private land, there's working with traditional owners, and then there's a, a public land piece as well. So they put out to tender the private land piece, um, which is about thirty million dollars worth of uh, investment in the landscape to realise twenty thousand hectares of new. Um, biodiverse uh, vegetation protected in Victoria with Trust for Nature. So so we put a bid in for that. Fortunately, uh, we're able to win that. And so we've got a really good partner in the state and we've got our other partners um, in the carbon space. Greenfleet still work with us. We've got a great partner out of uh, the Netherlands called Landlife and they've been wonderful. So you're working on Bushbank, you're working with a... a, a You've got the private. You put in the bid for yep, the yep. the private land kind mm-hmm. of uh, initiative from the state government. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you what what happened from from mm-hmm. there? Was there any other part of the project? Yeah, so there is. So the state's putting in, you know, their contribution, which which works out. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of fees. It'll have to go back to Trust for Nature to get all these covenants, all these legal things on title and. So we've got about $1,000 a hectare to play with to get this thing sorted okay. you know, across the state, uh, $900 probably. But we um, we recognise that, you know, some places that cost a lot more and some places that cost a lot, lot more to, really? to do Well, let's just that. dig into that just yeah. slightly because that's really interesting. Um, for those who are have no idea about mm. land management, yeah, yeah. Um, re- restoration work, mm. what do you do? You just like look at a you know a, a piece, of dirt. piece of dirt and go, oh, let's put a couple of gum trees yeah, there. Like, what yeah. what does the actual no, work no, look no. like? Yeah, that's 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 a really uh, that's a good. It's good to go back to that yeah. very early 
sort of way, the, what we're thinking about. So the, like we talked about a third of land managed for nature. It's not just any third either. Like it's got to be like we, we'd like to see – one of the goals we'd like to see is all our national parks reconnected. So, wow. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. Like yeah. um, we think about species extinction and, you know, we've lost – uh, you know the thylacine. We think, oh, that's that species is gone. What a tragedy! And that's that's absolutely true. That's a tragedy. But what we don't see um, is the small reserves that were once populated with you know many different species. If they're small, the genetic diversity of of the species within that uh, reserve slowly declines over time. Mm. Um, so you might have some birds that don't move far that are sort of because everything else around it's been cleared, they're sort of trapped in this, and then they're inbreeding, and then they, they drop out. You right. Know, they, they, their genetic diversity is not sufficient to maintain the population, so they drop out. And no one had noticed, like, this might be, like, 50 acres at the back of someone's farm that used to have a bunch of species that now aren't there. And that's right. sort of happening all over the landscape. Now, national parks and big areas are often refuges and there's enough genetic diversity in those that you've got viable populations but the specific genetic diversity that was in these isolated private areas is is lost and then uh, and then over time you know the thing about national parks is generally they were the areas of land that the farmers didn't want to clear because they came later you know it's like nobody cleared the grampians because what are you going to do with it you know so (laughs) it got left and like we end up with a whole lot of species that, you know, that are suitably um, happy in those sort of rocky, yeah. steep, you know, less soil environments. And then all the good soils and all the species that would have once lived in there are like isolated in their little tiny patches of stuff left on the back of farms and stuff. Wow. So there's, because like, we're in a different ecosystem, you know, we're in a, a plains, deeper soil, whatever. Um, mm. So... Re, reconnecting those isolated patches with the the larger, you know, national parks and sort of seeing that inter-landscape connectivity really work functionally is a long, you know, it's a long-term goal. Yeah. So when we go back, right back to Bushbank, like, what do we do? Do we just pick a patch of dirt and plant a few trees? We usually start by going, well, where do we want to, which are the bits of the landscape that we we can prioritise and we want to work in. And there's lots of other organisations doing the same thing. It's not like we're making this up for, for ourselves, but yep. there's all sorts of partners that are doing all sorts of wonderful work. Mm. But uh, we'd always be thinking about if, if an opportunity comes up, like how does this fit? What's the landscape context, you know? And probably a third of, a third of opportunities might have some, you know, utility in terms of um, drawing sort of that landscape context piece back together. Mm. Um, and, you know, maybe one in ten that we look at, we actually go, yep, yep, we really should pursue this opportunity. Right. So, And so that connecting all the national parks, hey, how how long do you think on how oh, complex? A, yeah, it's a hundred-year project, I reckon, yeah. yeah. It, at, at our current sort of bumbling along rate right. we do as Victoria at the moment. But, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it took a, like, 150 years to clear it, so it's going to take a while to put it back together. True. Yeah. And so Bushbank in itself, there's a there's a private component. Like who engages with the this um, program? Like you're mm. de- you're one the bid delivery. for delivering it. Yeah. But who who else engages with it? Yeah. From so, in terms of customers, client, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. public. 
So it would be pretty much landholders who own more than 20 hectares that are willing to put that into a conservation covenant. So that's who we're, that's who we're aiming for. Right. Now, there's two parts to Bush Bank too. Like Cassinia's model over the last 20 years has been we buy land at scale and do these sort of large, you know, nature restoration projects. So we'll continue to do that and that will continue to feed into Bush Bank. And about half of the target 20,000 hectare we anticipate that we'll end up having – our name on the title at some point in the thing. Um, now, we'd love to be working with First Nations and say some of that transition back to First Nations um, communities and, you know, there'll be lots of different iterations about where it goes. But about half of it will be, you know, private land that is not us. <laughs> it's other people's uh, land that we manage these restoration projects sort of in conjunction with hmm. with these landholders. So... Pretty reaching cool. out to them. I think we've we've done an expression of interest campaign. I think we've had maybe a couple of hundred people express interest in this and then we've shortlisted that back to I'm not deep in the mm. detail of this, but I think maybe twenty or so that we're okay. actually actively pursuing for the possibility of planning within the next sort of twelve months. All right. Months, yeah. So for anyone um, that may be listening, thinking, "Oh, that kind yeah. of sounds like me." Like, wh- how what would happens, they? Yeah. How would they engage? So one of our partners um, is another local business called Vegetation Link, and you could do a podcast on them one day. They're yeah. really very cool. They won Business Excellence Award from Alexander a year or two ago. Right. They're a great little organisation, and we work with them a lot. Uh, and they've actually been sort of brought into Bushbank as our as our sort of first point of contact. So if people are interested, they've got a, a bunch of people that can take the phone calls and pull up the maps and then model what this might look like cool. and sort of do the first cut on, you know, uh, other landholders willing to do what's needed to be done to, to make it a Bushbank project. Yep. Is it the scale? Yeah, is it going to work? Yeah, is it going to work? So yeah, And right. then, then from that, that'll come back to you know, to our team. Cool. Yeah. And then, so then we'd go and map, you know, map the site, decide on a project plan. And if the landholders ready to go ahead, then we'd, you know, order, be ordering seed because we do a lot of seed, direct seeding. Most yeah. of our work is, is direct seeded rather than right. rather than tube stock, but there's tube stock as well. Yep. Order tube stock, order direct, order seed for the direct seeding and then control the threats, you know, rabbits, woody weeds, you know, whatever else might be an issue, do the fencing and then and then sow or plant the project and then follow up with the whatever else is needed to have a management plan for that and then get the covenant on. So we work with Trust for Nature and put these covenants, conservation covenants on land that mean that it's managed for nature forever. So Wow. Mm. So just briefly, let's clarify covenants on yeah. land for mm. that, if that's an unfamiliar term. Mm. So what is a covenant mm. on a piece of land? Yeah, so a covenant is like a, a restriction on use, really. So we have covenants in, you know, building, like some estates will have a covenant that you can't build certain types of houses or they have to be, you know, certain colours or materials or whatever. Mm. But covenants, when it comes to conservation covenants, they're like – effectively what we talked about before they're like making sure legally that this land is only managed for nature in the future Mm. so um trust for nature is a a statutory body set up by the state government back in the 70s um yeah it's been around about 50 years and their job is to develop this legal instrument that can make sure that 
private land that's got good conservation values, protective conservation forever. So Cassini has been working with Trust for Nature since since 2008, since we did our first purchase and and when our Trust for Nature's largest covenanting partner, so we work with them, wow. talking to them every week um, and sort of increasing that what we would call the natural estate, we're increasing the land managed for nature on on private land through these covenants. Very cool. All right, I think we're all caught up on what, what Cassinia Environmental is and how it works, but in terms of, um, you know, what what makes it uh, a great company? What what are some success stories? Yeah. We've talked about winning a little, yeah. talked a little bit about winning mm. the Bushbank mm. bid, but what what give me some other highlights across the Cassinia environmental journey? Yeah, there's lots of places you can go with this, isn't there? Yeah. And, and you as a small business owner would, you know, it'd be interesting to hear you answer the same question. I mean, I think one of the other, one of the, uh, I'll give you three highlights that, one of the highlights is the partnerships you build with companies that are on the journey with you. And I remember my dad saying when I was really, I started my first business when I was like 21, which I, I sold, you know, when I finished my master's. And um, But I remember him saying right back at the start of that journey, he's like, it's easy to find a new, you know, like partner, a new supplier of this or that. Mm. Um, but you can only do it so many times, like, and then you've got to go back to, you know, where you started. If you if you fall out with, if there's four people who make this product and you want to buy this product for your, you know, whatever you're building or making, you know, and, and you, you tick one and then you tick another one off and you tick another one off, then you've only got one left, you know. It's like, he's like, you, you want to, as far as you can, build a long-term relationship with your partner and grow together. Yeah. And I remember him saying this when I was like, yeah, like 20 and so. Yeah, right. I, I good think advice. it's so true though. Like, because, yeah. yeah, if you find a good partner, just, you know, go on the journey together. Mm. And if they, you know, if they let you down and you need to move on, well, you need to move on. But if you can find a way and make sure there's enough in it for them to really enjoy the partnership as well mm. and do these long term journeys together. Mm. And I feel like that's from a business perspective, I feel like that's a, really good piece of advice aspire to have really long-term journeys with you know the people you join so vegetation links one example like we've been with them since they started we might have even been their first customer actually wow Wow. um and it's just a it's just a long and flourishing it's just a nurturing a nourishing journey together yeah and that's really our success yeah yeah yeah, yeah, I love that advice. Um, you, your dad did you great, a great yeah, uh, service with that one. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the highlights. Yeah, that's one, yeah. And and I just say that, you know, we've got a lot. Vegetating one's ex- is one example. We've got another one, a, a company out of uh, Amsterdam called Land Life. Mm. And I was on the call with them yesterday. And that's, like, we've worked with them since 2019. And that's a beautiful mm. journey. It's mm. just a beautiful relationship to build and, like, I love the fact that we're saying, well, you know, is there enough in it for you? Is this good? Is this a good deal for you? And they'll say the same to us. We we don't want you don't want, we don't want you to shortchange yourself. We want to yeah. we want to make sure you're really enjoying and getting what you want out of this. Great. And if we're mutually looking out for that in each other, then it just builds this just enjoyable work. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one thing. I think uh, the second thing 
is 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 your staff like and it's sort of the same thing but if you can really enjoy the relationships you have with your team um and find people you can go on a long journey with that's a beautiful thing too. does that come down to because uh, you know people are people and they make yeah. messes oh, yeah, um yeah. and does that come down to your ability to deal with those messes well, effectively I, think, I, I came up with an analogy yesterday it's yeah. funny we have this and i'm like Oh, I reckon that's the perfect analogy for staff. Like, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I, I, I've built a few stone walls. Yeah, and, I have. Yeah, have you built some stone oh, walls? Well, some brick ones. And yeah, some well, very... some brick ones and yeah. stone ones. So, yeah. like, there's two different types. You yes. can build a brick wall or a stone wall. Yeah. Now, if you build a really good stone wall, yeah. it, I reckon, looks better than a good oh, brick wall. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big time. And then why is that? It's because every stone is different. Now, yeah, yeah, you've got, yeah. with a brick wall, you've got the ability to screw it up by just being a bad tradesman or whatever. But you yes. pretty much, you know that every brick's going to be the same. Yeah. But people aren't like bricks. No. People are like stones. Every stone is different and every person's different. And to create a really beautiful stone wall, you've actually used all these differences, but you've you've made it look, you know, if you do a really good job, you get a nice smooth edge and you've got the diversity, but the consistency and all that. And I think, I think like working with staff is a little bit like building a stone wall, yes. like finding the right people that have the right fit and then, you know, making that the place they fit, the place that complements everything else. And, and it's not, it's that. not like bricks though. No, you know, it's, it's like not. If you could hire staff like bricks, it'd be so much easier. They're all the same. They're <laughs> well, all consistent. I think plenty of people try and I that's, know, uh, that's kind of a, a downfall. I love that analogy. If I was to take it a little bit further, I, yeah, I would say I've heard from a stonemason before that mm. um, to in the building process, you use the next brick you pick up. Yes, and exactly. you can't you can't pick one up and put it down again. Like yeah. you you pick one up and it's going on that wall somewhere. somewhere. It's got there is a place that it'll fit. Yeah, there yeah. is always a place that it'll fit, and it's about that. Um, matching the space mm -hmm. with the stone. Yeah. I think that's a per perfect analogy. Yeah. <laughs> Did that just good. dawn on you the other day? Well, yesterday <laughs> I was walking, I was talking to this mate of mine, I'm like, I think, and I just said, yeah, oh, building a it. team is like building a stone wall. Yeah, it's, that's yeah, really, really yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so team. And look, and so you wouldn't, not everyone that you would like to hire is going to fit your yeah. team, but yeah. once you once you have a team, like, you know, you find people's sweet spot and yeah. you try to really make them flourish and, you yeah. know. Yeah, so, so I think, uh, I, yeah, I, we've, got a, we've got a beautiful team and maybe I, you know, I'm not there when I'm not there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe everyone's like, oh, you know, Paul's like, just in this dream world of, you know, thinking everything's fine. <laughs> it's and romanticizing yeah, a bit. <laughs> totally naive to what's really going on. But that possibility aside, I yep. feel like if if I was left with only the friends in the world that I made at work, mm -hmm. I'd probably have enough friends. Like wow. I I just I just love our team. I just think we've got some of the most amazing, beautiful people and, and they they work so well together and yeah. So I think yeah, from business advice, like <clears throat> build long partnerships, mm. you know, think about your team, you know, build good relationships with your team and, mm. you know, and yeah. And this, yeah, There's, it doesn't mean things aren't going to be hard. doesn't no. mean you're not going to have to make hard decisions. And, yeah. and sometimes make the hard call to say, actually, 
I don't know where this stone fits in this wall. That occasionally <laughs> happens. Yes. But generally, if you can make it work, yeah. There's a I love that. There's, there's so much we could talk about in terms of team building and mm. team leading. But one thing I love about uh, a healthy functioning mm. team mm-hmm is the requirement for a vision mm. for them to unify yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you say that Ksenia has that, is that one of the elements that? I think so. I think so, yeah. What would you, yeah. how would you describe that that vision? I mean, it, it's probably put really simply yeah, in a really yeah. short yeah, sentence well, somewhere, but. You know, we, we say like, um, uh, and I think this is the catchment authority has a very similar vision statement, but. Um, people in nature flourishing, you know, um, mm. creating opportunities for people in nature to flourish. Yep. Our goal would be 30% or a third of the landscape managed for nature. But So I think people, you know, coalesce around around those two things. Mm. And then I think we try to create an environment that, you know, is, you know, hope is welcoming and yep. is nourishing and, and I hope people feel that, yeah. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, we do, we do fall in around that. That and vision. That, you know, you expand that vision out mm. and there are, are layers upon layers of values mm. that um, people can align themselves mm. to, like mm. that you've got a really strong um, actual on-the-ground grassroots mm. work mm. in environmental restoration. Mm-hmm. That is that is a big driver for many people. Mm. And, mm. and I know when we're talking about um, uh, traditional owners, mm. man, yeah, that is even deep, so, even so, deep. Yeah. You know, their yeah. connection to country is within them, right? Mm. It's it's mm. it we it's weaved through their mm. thousands of years of culture and mm. and tradition, and mm. that that means mm. so much. It's so personal, mm. but. Even for for uh, you know people who aren't traditional owners, mm. for my, like myself, I take the 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 responsibility and the power I have over mm. land and mm. space mm. really seriously, mm. and, and it's not something that to be ignored or or um, tossed aside. Mm. That that is my responsibility as a human mm. is to 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 uh, treat the um, the management of the land that I. Mm have been given or purchased mm. uh, with respect mm. and to leave it better mm. and to, mm. you know, lift it uh, mm. and without, you know, there's this, um, I don't know what you think about this, but there's a there's kind of a, a belief uh, going around that, you know, humans are a bit of a scourge on the mm. earth. Like, mm. you know, the earth would be better off if humans never existed. Mm. Mm. I think that's kind of a bit of a mis- misaligned mm kind of perspective in that humans for a long time and for a period have done not good things Mm. and they haven't treated their responsibility well. Mm. But that doesn't mean that if you remove humans that Mm. the the whole earth is better, right? No. Because it is designed to be an ecosystem Mm. where one part benefits the other. And if we're playing our role correctly, then we will be a huge benefit mm. on the environment. Mm. What, what, what yeah, would your I, thoughts I, be? I, well, I, I, I agree. We've got the potential to be that, absolutely. And it's interesting, like the pendulum sort of swung potentially from being, uh, you know, we should wipe out every tree and clear every forest and plant crops and, and make the world a better place, quote unquote, you know, by by having this incredibly sort of productive potential. Mm. And we sort of pursued that idea, well, probably for a couple hundred years. Um, you know, I was in the UK and saw the the fens that had been drained in the 1850s and it's like huge, diverse ecosystem 
um, that would have just been a mass extinction event when all that lowland area of the UK was drained. Like, wow. but they thought they were doing the right thing. They're turning yeah. it all to productive, you know, um, agriculture, you know, profitable. So, but I think then the pendulum swung the other way to what you're saying is like, our oh, people are the problem and people, you know, we should get rid of all the people and then everything would be fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard a bit of, uh, we got a book called, um, uh, what's it called? Aboriginal Environmental Knowledge, I think the book's called. And it talks about this this indigenous idea of, of land being lonely without people. Like people mm. are, are needed on land to, for land to be, you know, not lonely to be yeah. to be fulfilled, and I feel like yeah. you know if we think of ourselves as creatures in a creation, then we've got a role. Like there's a place for us as humans yeah. to be yeah. part of, and we've got we've got jobs to do, and we've got yeah. we're part. Like you say, we're part of the ecosystem. We we we're, we're meant to be in this thing, but we're not meant to be. We're meant to be stewarding this thing. Yes. Like, not exploiting yes. this thing. Yes. It's a relationship of respect and yeah. uh, mutual respect. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's so good. The the When you say how the, the pendulum swung, mm. and mm. I think through a lack of knowledge mm. or a, a, there's probably a lot to it, right? Mm, Why? Go <laughs> <here>. <laughs> I was just thinking, man, psychological yeah. about it. Anyway, the, through a lot of different factors, mm. um, the, the um, – proper stewardship of the land was mm. tossed to the side, mm. knowingly or unknowingly, mm. um, uh, through a lack of wisdom or understanding. Mm. Mm. And uh, we we saw what that did. Mm. You know, we, we lost we still are, species. Yeah. yeah, we still are. Mm. We're seeing, we're still reaping the impacts of mm. those decisions. Um, but the beauty of it is that um, it, it's not one wins or the other wins. Mm. It's not like you compromise mm. productivity, uh, and human flourishing mm. um, by promoting the the flourishing of the land more. There's actually, uh, uh, from what I can see, mm. uh, a place where both of them flourish, um, and that's the place that is actually best for both. Mm. There's this biodiversity, for example. There's a massive movement in farming. It's probably gone been going for a long time, but mm. it's becoming. I think it's ramping up a mm. bit in understanding that. Uh, it is so much healthier for your crops. You will get better yields. You will have better longevity over your over your land and your farm. Um, and there's a, a million benefits. Um, you know, like rising water tables, desalination mm. levels, and all that sort mm. of stuff, with greater biodiversity in your soil and using uh, more natural systems to. Mm to um, like regenerative mm, agriculture, mm, for example. Mm. That's a big movement. Mm, yeah, it's a huge movement. But that, yeah. has, that has a lot of benefits on the farmer, the people, mm. the, the quality of the food, the amount of um, cost saving mm. that they, uh, is, there is potential for in not, not dumping a, and buying a heap of chemical or whatever mm. to put, it on, that, put mm. on that land. Yeah, that's a big – that's a <laughs> podcast. And it would be great <laughs> to have some – I mean, I feel like farmers are – you know, we had the sort of period where where we had Black Saturday and firefighters were the heroes and then we had the pandemic and nurses were the heroes. Mm. I'm just waiting for the day something happens and farmers become the heroes and we're like <laughs> the rock stars of, yes. of culture, of society and these <laughs> farmers. Because what farmers do, whether they're regenerative or yep. conventional or whatever, is like, it it's is amazing. amazing. It's amazing. It's right? amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. 
produce enough food that we can just walk down and mm. go to the supermarket or go to the shops and just get whatever we want, whenever we want. And it's just like, and it's it's amazing. I think there's a real lack yeah. of understanding and value in our in our culture as as we get further and further mm. away, away from, from uh, yeah. a, a uh, predominantly um, agricultural community mm. that um, that the food just comes from the supermarket. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's it's phenomenal. <laughs> so and then regenerative ag, like that's you know that's got it's got some real promise. I think mm. to think more naturally, mm. but these things. You know, the systems are set up now um, for a more, let's call it conventional uh, approach. Yep. And, and we're learning um, more about soil biology, for example, yep. um, and, and what the longevity of the current approach is, we don't really know. Mm. I guess I don't want to delve too far into saying, yep. okay, let's throw all that out because no. I think this is going to be a transition. Yeah. What we are saying is that, Actually, a third of the landscape should be managed not for agriculture but for nature. Yep. And then we need to do a better job on the two-thirds to make sure that is not, um, you know, not getting in the way. Yep. So we've got a project we're doing with Trust for Nature where we've developed um, the Victoria, anyways, first farm covenant. So it's like the conservation covenant, but then what, how, what, what do we think about on the rest of the farm? What do we want to prohibit? You know what soil types are fragile that we shouldn't ever mm. perhaps plow those, and mm. you know or the things that sort of sit outside the fence from the nature protection area, but it, by putting a an encumbrance on, by putting a layer on, we can actually protect the agricultural land from you know silly mm. approaches and silly uh, management approaches. Great. Um, that would that would be detrimental to both agriculture and to, you know, the conservation land adjoining it. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, so it's interesting. But, yeah, like there's a lot there. I mean, yeah, I used yeah. to work as an agronomist, so, um, yeah, I've seen both sides of that conversation and uh-huh. and uh, I think uh, I think farmers are amazing. Mm. Yeah, and we are getting better. Mm. Um, mm. But and, and we have got a better ethos, I think, in thinking about this stewardship idea rather than yep. this sort of – my right to exploit yeah. in whatever I want. Totally. way I want. Yeah, that would be a rabbit hole that would be never-ending, a whole podcast series on its yeah, own. Yeah, it would be great. And this, I could put be. some people on to you. Yeah, that, great. Uh, you could <laughs> interview and get some different perspectives. Um, as we kind of head into landing this plane yeah, really. of a, of a podcast, started, yeah. I know, I know. Um, I want to touch on uh, so your journey uh, in business and yeah. I want to touch on, you know, you've you've – explored a couple of really cool things mm. in what, what's made Cassinia mm. amazing and what mm. it is. Mm. But I wonder if you could walk us through, like, what are some learnings that you've had along the mm. way and what does that business journey look like and what are some mistakes you've made, like yeah. real real yeah. big stuff-ups that you're yeah. like, you learned from? <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, I've got a friend uh, who whose name's Danny and he – he gave he he was asked it was a podcast he he gave once and he was asked what his three best pieces of business advice were yeah. and I've actually used his advice I'm hey. like that is so good I've got to use that before so I'll give you his three okay um he, I think if I can remember correctly yeah. he's like his first one was persistence beats a good idea every time and I was like that is so true if you if you demonstrate mm. uh, consistency and you you don't give up. On an idea now, a bad idea. You do need to know when to give up. But <laughs> yes. if it's not a bad idea, yeah, um, 
the 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 benefit of persistence is so mm. important. Wow, so important. I love that. Yeah, persistence beats a good idea. The second piece he gave was, um, and I think this is really true: is comparison is the death of happiness. Wow. Like, um, wow. If because there's always going to be somebody who is like, oh, you know, if I was like that, or you know, somebody prettier or faster or richer or whatever, you know, mm. better at the thing you're trying to do than you are, and you know, I think finding the place to to really enjoy your own race is good. That speaks to the um, point you made earlier about uh, building really strong relationships with mm. um, businesses around you. That yeah. you know, uh, we see it in the creative industries a mm. lot. Um, that with a lot of small operators doing the same thing, mm. there you can either go down a collaboration mm. kind of mm. uh, viewpoint mm. and culture, build that, or build the competition yeah, yeah. Uh, culture. And that one's no fun. No. This one, no. it leads to the, the flourishing, yeah. you know, the rising tide lifts yeah, all ships right. kind of right. perspective. Yeah. And I, I think I, the comparison point of view, it being a, mm. a stealing your, you know, a thief of happiness or whatever. Yeah, because is the death of happiness. Nah, yeah. yeah, that's really good. It's so true, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and his third one is then do something that you enjoy that's that's fundamentally good for the world. Like don't mm. do something, you know, just for the money. Mm. Uh, do something that's got another layer to it that you also enjoy. And I feel like those three things are, are really valuable. In terms of the mistakes, um, like that's a, that's a great question. I've... I, I've made some mistakes, but I think a piece of advice I often give people, and I'm not ripping this off, Danny, but um, <laughs> is like hurry up and make some mistakes. Like, Good. The first thing you got to do is get out there and screw some things up. Good. Like everyone, and particularly uh, people who work for government, uh, are just so risk averse. It's like you never learn if you don't make mistakes. You got to, you got to, like appropriately. Mm. You know, screw some things up because that shows you that's that's where the best learnings are. Mm. And the fact that we call these things mistakes um, imply, you know, that they're loaded with the fact that they shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Like they're not really mistakes. They're just like, you know, probing learning. So yeah. we've done, like if you went back to I mean, every iteration of Cassinia and every iteration of all these other things we're doing, it's like it's just one thing after another that we Realize wasn't the right thing. Yeah, like cool. if you didn't have a map and you were trying to find your mate's house, yeah, you'd have to drive down a lot of streets. Now, mm. is every street you drive down a mistake? Mm. It's just no. It's just a way it's to learning. learn where your mate doesn't live or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I feel so like good. that's what it's like in yep. in all these things. You know, just yep. keep trying. You won't get the right thing. You won't get the final thing the first time. You mm. just got to mm. just keep iterating. So mm. making mistakes is. Mm. Critical in terms of big mistakes that we made. I mean, I, know, I probably don't even think about them as yeah. like regrets. It's like no. yeah, it's like yeah, we lost money on this deal, but we learned about you know who not to deal with. You right. Know, what a great opportunity to <laughs> to deal with that group again or whatever. I know. love that perspective though because that it's uh, it's the optimistic view, but it's actually the one that gives you the learning, right? Yeah, that's you go right. look. I'm not gonna ignore it or uh, or like you know beat myself up about no. this this thing that happened because failing is how we progress yeah you know you've exactly. got to fail forward right yeah. I love that yeah, yeah. and and you know a, a part of managing yourself well is like 
yeah, if this fails, what's that going to do for me? Mm. Can I afford to fail in this? Mm. Uh, I need to be able to fail, well, fail fast, fail often, but only fail once in that particular way and learn and, and iterate. So I think that's, I think that's a really valuable piece of business mm. of business advice. I love that. Yeah. So um, I want to come back. There's one challenge that maybe uh, I, I want to dig into before we wrap this up. Mm. The you you mentioned Cassinia growing mm. really really rapidly mm. in terms of staff mm-hmm. uh, and people. Was that really challenging to mm. kind of keep? keep everything aligned and moving? Mm. Was was there any challenges that you learnt something from there or you were like, oh, man, yeah. feeling out of yeah. control at points? Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Like it's all that, – that was all the challenge because, mm. you know, you, you can only grow so fast and you can only have so many staff that don't know sort of the back story and the systems at, at, at one time. Mm. So, may, I mean – this might be wrong, but maybe you can grow it like 50% a year, mm. like in terms of new staff. Otherwise, there's too many people who don't really know what's going on. Now, if you hire good staff that have already got experience and they can slot right in, then, you know, that, that changes things. But, yeah, I mean, Nathan's done more of this part than me. So Shout out to Nathan. Yeah, shout out to Nathan. And shout out to my wife, Rach, who's put up with this whole sort of chaos of this journey too for a long time yeah. and the rest of the family. And, um, mm. yeah, it's really been a, a shared journey mm. um, with all, you know, with Nathan. And, and then uh, Ash is, is running Woodlands and, and, you know, that, you know, <laughs> yeah, like the amount of times I turn up late for meetings or have to leave meetings early, uh, you know, where because there's lots of other things on and these guys, you know, really, really – really carry this stuff and then and then on the community stuff um yeah i tried to i tried to hire somebody and she uh she kept i tried to hire this one girl and she i tried to hire her every year i'm like she's the perfect rock for the snow wall on yep. the community stuff and every time i call her she's like no nah. but i know who you should hire should hire this guy called ross and uh it took me about a year to actually I, I tell actually ring Ross. I called him one day. It's like, you really, you know, we've got this opportunity. You really should come and do this. And she said, have you called Ross yet? Like, no. <laughs> no, I want you. So, and I said, no, I want you. She's like, I'm not, I'm not even talking to you until you've called Ross. So I called Ross and then Ross has been with us for a year and a half. And cool. Ross is a genius. Ah. You know, she was so right. <laughs> I hope she so doesn't good. ever have regret because she, she nailed it. But, that, but yep. you know, these, these key people and, and, mm. and, and Kiralee and uh, the, the executive team of Kissing you know, like it's just, mm. yeah, shout out to all of them. Yep. Um, it's, it's, it is hard to grow mm. and it does get shaky, you know. It's like um, building before the concrete set, you know, it, it's, it's, it can be wobbly. But, um, but these guys really carry it mm. together. You know, they carry it probably more than me and, uh, and they're amazing. So if you've got the right team. I love that. You can grow, but you don't want to grow too fast, you know. Yeah. I think the death of – there'd be more businesses – I heard this actually, this quote, more businesses die from indigestion than starvation. <laughs> and, uh, too much. It's true. Yes. I'm sure it's true. Yeah. Yes. We think, oh, I can do all that, and you take it all on, and you realise you haven't got the systems or you haven't got the capital or whatever to deliver on mm. what you try to ingest. So be careful there. 
That's great advice as well. I I personally am looking forward to the the day where I can be uh, I can have amazing people uh, mm. and rely on them and uh, yeah. and and you know do yeah. what you seem to be doing, well, which play, is be the rock, be, be your thing, right? Yeah, and the stone wall. I'm part of yeah. that too, and I've got yeah. a particular place, and I there's a whole bunch of parts of that that I'm just not suited to. Yeah. But yeah, you got some great people too. Yeah, 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 and hopefully adding more. Yeah. So the what's next? What's what does it, the future look like? Yeah. What is the on the horizons? Yeah. For well, I think Paul this Chapman. community stuff um, is really interesting. And um, uh, look, how long we got to unpack that? But there's the, another project that I haven't spoken about that I'll just close out with. Um, um, in 2016, I went to the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. And thanks to Tim Penny, who said, when you go to America, you've got to go to the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. Never thanked him for that, probably. And, uh, and so anyway, we did. We were on a bit of a road trip. My wife's from the US. And we we're on a bit of a road trip. And we were going close to Memphis. So we dropped in. And, um, and this is a, just like it's the, a journey through the civil rights movement from, you know, from the you know, the 1800s and slavery, abolition, and through the civil rights movement, um, you know, Martin Luther King's story and the museum's actually set in the motel where he was shot. So very powerful. Wow. Um, and just a just an ability to go for three hours maybe just slowly through this, this long journey, this long struggle of, you know, yeah, some amazing people. Um, anyway, I came away from that with a, a real feeling that this is amazing. You know, I understand and I feel empathy and I feel connection with these people who've been through the struggle. But also thought, you know, we've had the same struggle in Australia. Where can I go for that? Mm. You know, where can I experience, where can I have a, a deep, long um you know, time to process and think mm. what the struggle for, you know, reconciliation we're in now, but mm. before that recognition and before that, you know, what the assimilation period was like and all the mistakes that were made there and, you know, right back to first contact. Like mm. there's, there's a journey, there's a intersection between, you know, Indigenous Australia and non-Indigenous Australia that has been going on for a couple of hundred years now, more, um, but we've got nowhere to explore and mm. really understand that mm. journey. Wow. So, so that's one of the other Cassinia community projects. Is like, could we, could we seed an idea like this and and be part of working with others to create wow. that thing? That's a big then, project. Yeah, some filmmakers and stuff like that. That mm. would be really. Mm. Yeah. I know a couple. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> we should talk. About <laughs> it. But yeah, it's a beautiful project. Wow. It, it, it is. I think if if we could create the same experience that the guys in Memphis created, um, that would be a something good for the soul of Australia. So, wow! Oh yeah. man, it gives me goosebumps just mm. listening to you talk about it. Mm. I, I can't wait to to follow the development mm. of that journey. Mm. I think that's going to be huge. Mm. Well, thanks, cool. Paul, That's, for thanks, coming Caleb. on this. Wonderful. Wow, we've gone a whole lot of different places, yeah, yeah. but it has been an absolute honour to hear some of your insights and some of your journey. I think it'll be a really, really riveting uh, listen for, for those who choose to. So thank yeah, you. No worries. Cheers. Please hit the subscribe button and the like button, and I would love to hear what you think about it in the comments below. Mm.